This week's episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Vodafone Comedy Festival, happening July 28th to 31st in Dublin's gorgeous Ivy Gardens. 80 amazing international and homegrown comedy acts will be performing across five venues and four days. This festival has a tradition of booking all the great comedians you'd hope for and expect at an Irish comedy festival, but also a whole heap of brilliant international acts you'll probably be seeing for the first time. This was the festival where I first got to see Maria Bamford perform, and it was amazing. So yes, there'll be the likes of Jason Byrne, Dirge O'Kane and Ashling B., but there'll also be the great Bill Burr, current SNL cast member Sashir Zameda, and Inside Amy Schumer regular Dan Soder. So if you're into your comedy, you definitely need to check this out. Tickets are available right now from VodafoneComedy.com. That's the ad, and now, on with the show. Hello and welcome back to the Weekly General Meeting Podcast. This is episode 18, a showcase about filmmakers, writers, actors, musicians, poets... Anyone creative, really. From where? From Ireland. From Ireland. So either whether they be established already or emerging, this is where you're going to sort of hear and see, not see them, but hear them. Yeah, you hear them. Just hear them. <laughs> There's no and. <laughs> this, uh, this podcast is themed uh, Lost and... Found. Yes. So. so all the performers that you'll hear are performing their work on that theme. Um, the first guest we have is Christian Foley, who is a spoken word artist from London who uh, uses his rapping and poetry skills to teach kids in disadvantaged areas in London. And we're really lucky to have him with us in the 100 Club. Yeah. So this is Christian Foley. Enjoy. So my, my role is a, a spoken word educator. So I... I teach kids who go to school and I work, kids, work with kids who don't go to school um, who have been excluded and we use poetry to kind of reinvigorate their ideas towards education. Um, the first poem I did I actually showed to them and they said it's shit. All right, so um, that's the first one we're going to go with. This is a comedy venue so I'm going to do some of the most depressing shit uh, you've heard. All right, this is called Comets. In the year 1986, Haley's Comet made its first appearance in over seven decades. The last time it tore through the fabric of the sky and left heaven's dress frayed, my grandmother was a child. She would have watched it wheeling between rising rain and sinking day while the evening began to shrink away. She would have watched it light the lines in the face of her dad as he hauled the salmon catch in Dingle Bay and the weight on his back glistened like chain mail. A year later, she waited for Haley's Comet to return and mist drifted in ghosts while her eyes skimmed the coast. She couldn't read and write. And when you can't read and write, watching the sky blaze is the purest form of language. Now, the comet did not return the next year nor the next. And when her dad did not return and come back from the ocean, she used to remember how his face had looked under Haley's eye. I wonder if she'd recognize the comet now. Now, with dementia, she doesn't recognize me, her grandson that takes her arm, and she holds tight as if expecting us to take flight. We watched the sky, and she asked me if there was such a thing as heaven. I don't know. I associate comets with the man that she met at a dance in a bar in Dukes and married and loved and stayed with for 70 years. My grandfather told me he was going to catch the tail of a comet. He promised to surf in its stream, searching the infinite, boundless expanse of universe for the sun that he buried and outlived. I wonder if you found him in a sky where the wonders are astounding. For what is a comet but a burning desire to be emblazoned in light, united with the elements that made up your your life, the stardust, the atoms of ones your heart loved, and in a moment, it's gone. Its traces trickle like silver teardrops over decades, and like all things, it is gone. When my grandmother asks me if there is a heaven, I do not remind her of those she has forgotten. I remind her of the adventures she planned as a child, 
There, staring out over the dark green of the Irish Sea, soon she will embark on the next journey, caught in the slipstream of a glowing star, where my grandfather's essence will burn with incandescent beauty. The night gives its blessing truly. The sky will be kissed by tongues of flame. And I will go back to Kerry and stand at Dingle Bay every single day and wait for that comet again. <laughs> Okay, it's my last one. Little raindrops whip on the whitewashed walls and kitchen windows where I sit alone. On the shaky wooden table where fables and stories unfurled from your words and our world was entwined, a young child who smiled at the jokes you told. Granddad, I'm just about to visit your ward. Miracles, Lord. Miracles, Lord. The spiritual thoughts of my mother inside inside of my heart while I try to find some words to summarize the binds and bonds we shared in your life upon this earth. Grandfather, your worth I immerse in this verse. For you gave me the words which I work and weave in each breath that I breathe. I still can't believe how quickly we grieve. It seems a dream that only last month, only last month, our hands shook and you danced up and down the garden kicking a rolled up pair of socks. Now I'll go where you're not, and I know you're scared. You're calling out for your brother in the night. We throw the prayer skywards while the world pales to white before your failing sight. I don't know how to save your wife. I don't know how to save a life. I don't know how to say goodbye. So I wake in the night shaking with fright, already planning which phrase to recite at your funeral. Soon you will be my happy memories. Teacher who was sent to me with the wisdom of centuries. And how could you be meant to leave a mentally we're broken? Soaking in these elegies, my pen strokes that when spoken open all wounds to one day may be closed. And remember, we would cycle on the hillsides with the wind in our eyes. What a thrill ride! Instilled pride to your grandkids. Visited my school, taught lessons in the Gaelic language. A blessing the anguish was vanquished for so long. Now, so long and farewell, don't farewell for words. Now, your welfare is worse. We watch the nurse tell comforting lies. Blood rushing from sides and gushing from cancer for cells. A man who was hailed strong and alive, dying next to me. What a song that I write, you will never read. I pray that you rest in peace. I pray that you rest in peace in the pain that kept you leaves. And your son Sean, again you will meet. The rain beats on the street you were able to see. I wish the light would arrive and stay to complete the cycle of life. And you're in pain that we see what we have to see, but it's all right. I'm here to the last, my friend. We laugh with friends in the living room of my student house while you hoovered round and joked to the mess. I hope for the best, not knowing you'd be slowing till they opened your chest and pressed pressure to coax out your breath. I'm lonely and stressed, broken, depressed. Same old clothes that I dress with the scent of Ward 17. I never dreamed that your road led here, so I see you on that farm in Ireland where you spent your childhood, fishing in seas, so cold that your fingers would freeze in the hiss of a whistling breeze with the sky dipped in the sheen of bright blue I try to live in this dream but all I see is drips and beakers uniforms, whispered speakers so I close my eyes and I close my ears and I see you on a beach yes, I see you on a beach with old jeans rolled to the knees the warm water flows over your feet over the worn golden sole then goes a retreat leaving the foam to comb the driftwood and white sand your slight hand opens to a palm and waves like the ocean eyes bright with emotion and quiet devotion to the next stage so when the boat comes you wade waist deep and climb in eyes fixed on a horizon wind in the sails you sail from land farther wind in the sails you sail from land farther wind in the sails you sail from land farther rest in peace my beloved grandfather Our next guest is a, quite frankly, a brilliant comedian, uh, perhaps my favourite uh, new Irish comedian. Her name is Alison Spittle. Uh, she recently supported Rob Delaney uh, at Vicker Street. And according to her mum, whom I had a very long conversation with down in Kilkenny, a very pleasant one. Uh, well, I said long, and that made it sound like it was unpleasant. It was a long and pleasant conversation with her mum. Well, anyway, according to her, uh, she ripped it up so well at said uh, supporting Rob Delaney that that it kind of ruined the show for Rob Delaney and he and she felt bad for 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 Rob Delaney because uh, she had done so well in the supporting <laughs> act that uh, that uh, basically ruined Rob Delaney's night. I don't know how much that was hyperbole. Uh, well, I mean, she's an independent source. Exactly, being, being Alison's exactly. Mom, yeah. But uh, her mum was very proud 
of her daughter, and rightly so, because she's just been doing lots of wonderful stuff oh, for the last ab- couple of years. She's absolutely brilliant. Um, if you get a chance and you're in Dublin, check out the Alison Spittle show in The Workman's, which is on almost every Friday. It's counter-programming for the Late Late Show. It's such a cool and clever idea. She has bands on, she has guests. It's a live chat show, basically. And it's also podcasted on, 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 on a rival podcast sort of network thing head stuff which is is pretty good I guess she's, she's absolutely fantastic I always had a really awkward interaction with Alison when she played here in the Phoenix Arts Club oh yeah after she did the uh, monthly general meeting I went down to see and and uh, I made the mistake of being late so it was just at the door she was about to go on she went oh hey how's it going and the guy was asking me for money and he turned to her going you know do you know this guy slash does he get in for free and I was fine to pay it wasn't even that expensive yeah. you know it was a good show but like it wasn't like it was like a fire and I was like oh no I'll pay and and, and he was like no it's um. oh god so uh, just before she went on and so I I, I got in for free <laughs> laughed really loudly at everything and clapped Damn massively right. at yeah. the end and then uh, when I left and shook Alison's hand I <laughs> threw a fiver like he would tip oh, a waiter because I felt so guilty for not paying so I paid her directly well see that isn't I mean that I mean it would be okay if you tipped her like you tipped a waiter because you just leave your money on the table but you tipped her like you tipped a valet oh crap which is which is more awkward and you you know gosh you're very awkward I'm pretty awkward but you're 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 quite awkward as well aren't you yeah I guess that's why we're friends well, there you go. Well, anyway, um, Alison recently joined us in the 100 Club, where she did a, a rather charming and funny set uh, all about death. And here it is. Hello, thanks very much. I'm glad I had time now. Yeah. So, yeah, my name is Alison. I am, most of you are from Ireland, aren't you? Good. Uh, so you know what Westmead is. Uh, my name is Alison and I'm from Westmead and I moved up to Dublin there uh, a year ago. Moved up to this place in Dublin called Dolphin's Barn. If any of you heard of it? Oh. I've been looking for a dolphin and a barn everywhere. I can't find it. Um, but I did find a guy shouting at a bin con a Croatian bastard. So it's amazing what you find if you look hard enough. And uh, I've only been robbed twice since I moved there. And the worst thing about being robbed uh, is not the kind of like feeling unsafe in your home and not having a laptop for a year. But because uh, <laughs> that's shit, you guys <laughs> can't go on Tumblr on your smartphone. Um, but it's my mum. My mum rings me up the whole time to make sure I'm OK. But she'll ring me up from Westmead with the crappiest bits of information from my village that she thinks I will find interesting enough that I will come home to. Like, uh, <laughs> she'll ring me and she'll go, Alison. Alison. You'll never guess who died, Alison. So then I have to spend about 20 minutes going for a long list of people with health difficulties in my village until I get the correct one. It's like the saddest version of Cluedo in the world, so it is. Um, but like she'll ring me about other stuff, she'll ring me and she'll go, Alison, Alison, do you remember John from down the road? John, do you remember him? He used to own the hardware shop slash dentists. (laughs) That's true, he did. Uh, We also had a barman that would lick your warts for a tenner. Did you not have that too? Yeah, those warts would be gone eight to 12 months every time. The man was a miracle worker, so he was. But she'll go, John's after dying, Alison. But you may come down to this funeral tomorrow. There's going to be chicken goujons and everything at this funeral tomorrow. Recession didn't hit that bastard, I tell you, huh? Unlike the Nissan Micra that tragically did. Uh, (laughs) Big talk in my village. (laughs) But like, um, the thing is, um, there's a big lot of um, competition when it comes to funeral catering in my village. For instance, someone died in my village and the only choice of sandwich at the funeral was Calvita cheese. 
And, and uh, for you that are not initiated, it's shit cheese. Uh, <laughs> my mum goes, and this is, this is true, my mum said, well, you might as well have kicked the fecker into the grave amount of respect that sandwich is given, huh? And she's dead right. <laughs> she's dead right. <laughs> but it can go the other way too. I mean, like sometimes they can go over the top with funeral food. My aunt, for instance, my aunt, she, anytime anyone dies anywhere near her, right, she will bring samosas, wontons, highfalutin shite, right, to a funeral. And my mom says, Wow. <laughs> She can bring all the volivants she wants to this funeral tomorrow, Alison. But that still doesn't stop the fact that she'd an affair 15 years ago. She's a marked woman, Alison. No choice of dip will change that. So, my mum's very fair. <laughs> uh, she'll forgive but not forget. Uh, like that chorus song. So, but I want to talk to you. <laughs> I want to talk to you about uh, funerals, more so, uh Um, because I used to work in radio, and one of the big businesses we have in radio is a thing called the death notices. For for the people that are uninitiated with Ireland, uh, death notices is basically a a radio show that happens three times a day on local radio. Every local station has it, and it just lists off your hip and happening funerals going on in your local area that day. It is fantastic. Uh, you'll never have to buy an egg salad sandwich ever again. You turn up at any church, touch the forehead of enough conviction, they'll think you know them and you're grand. Sandwiches away, you know. <laughs> um, but um, the thing is, like, um, no one had died in a, a county called Mayo, right, for, for two days. And they still had to have the death notices because death notices are such big business that they're actually sponsored. So... <laughs> I'll tell you what the death notice sounded like on Midwest FM in County Mayo. Right. Do, 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 do. Sponsored by Wavin Pipes. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> Midwest FM would like to apologize that no one has died in the past two days. Please tune in tomorrow for more updates. As if like the DJ <laughs> is waiting for someone to die and go, yeah, we got him. We got him. Road accident. Yeah. Um, so I'd listen to my mom ring me about funerals the whole time. And like sometimes what I like to do is if someone has died, I like to listen to Midlands 103 and see if there's anyone in my village that has died. So when my mom rings me an hour later, she'll go, you'll never guess who died. And I'm like, John McCann. And she's like, how did you know? And then I like to go, Mom, Mom, I can't really talk right now. I can only call you from payphones from now on. I love you, Mom. I love you, Mom. Goodbye. <laughs> and then don't call her for two days. <laughs> so just to show that she loves me, you know? She misses me. Um, so, like, the thing is, right, that I have this new invention now because I can't find out who's pregnant on the radio. So I've got this new invention, and it is called pregnancy notices, right? Hear me out, you guys. It's a good invention. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example of what a uh, pregnancy notice would sound like. <coughs> Tasha Glennon impregnated suddenly behind Supermax at Moat. That's a true story, lads. I kept sketch. Uh, <laughs> I'm a good friend. <laughs> oh, you won't clap at the next bit now. Uh, <laughs> All spurless gossip about the identity of the father to be left at mass. She leaves behind a half-finished arts degree. So that's a sad one, right? But we'll do a happier one. We'll do a happier one. This is the happier one. <clears throat> Miriam McCarty impregnated peacefully at her home. Surrounded by loved ones. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. You've been wonderful tonight. Have a great night, all right? <laughs> Our next guest is Dylan Haskins. I wish I, I was I, Dylan Haskins many times. Uh, when he was like a teenager, he set up a record label and ran these really cool punk gigs and had a fanzine and you know shot a documentary on do it, 
yourself culture, not in the kind of hardware sense, but the kind of, you know... you know, The punk sense. Yeah, English guys with black hoodies. Um, yeah, he's absolutely fantastic, really interesting character. He's, he ran for election, He uh, and uh, he put together a really, really interesting documentary because it turns out, he, although he has an unusual name, he found an ancestor who was the last man to be hung in Ireland. Mm. He made a, a documentary about it and told us um, the whole story, which is pretty pretty bonkers so here it is and we hope you enjoy it yeah thanks for coming the the reason we wanted to do this format was to give you a chance to introduce the concept of the show that you put together for rte1 and uh, explain because it's such a weird story um and I i remember the first time on that second show um and we were talking about the election and i remember i told you that there have been two spoiled ballots in Dublin, which had had um, two separate people unknowns to each other had written virgin across my head as their way to spoil their ballots. So that's how they spent their once every five years vote. Um, so I don't know how I felt about that. The thing I actually remember about that, we had a conversation about uh, Dylan's, which we can call it now, Dylan's unsuccessful run for election. Absolutely. Okay. Um, but you uh, you started a fight with somebody from Sinn Féin in the audience that night, if Did I remember. I? Is there anyone from Sinn Féin in the audience tonight? No, he wouldn't fucking let you. you know. <laughs> Sorry, somebody just put his hand up just as I started to say that. You're very welcome. Um, I forgot, so, I forgot the documentary... About... Um, <clears throat> wow. Let's stick to the documentary, because that got weird the last time. Um, totally forgot that. Explain, please, to the audience what, what exactly happened. Um, so it was, it was actually, uh, so yeah, so we were driving in the car in 1998, I was 11, um, driving up the N11, and Haskins is, isn't that common a surname in, in, in Ireland, um, or in England really, obviously we haven't like procreated enough, um, and this judge's voice came on the radio, and it was kind of bellowed, and it went, James Haskins, you're sentenced to death by hanging, and my dad's name is James Haskins, and he was just like, fuck um i nearly crashed the car uh and um he was just kind of bewildered he'd never heard haskins on radio like my dad was a mechanic and then here he is being sentenced to death and uh so he started trying to like say so you know who is this guy he knew he was from wicklow because it was an ad for wicklow jail so he was the last man to be hanged in wicklow jail as opposed to ireland and it was in 1843 uh, the last man hung in Ireland was only in the 1950s or something like that. Crazy. Um, but, uh, and they used to bring the hangmen over from, from here, Pierpoint and people like that, who were the hangmen and in Britain came over to hang people in Ireland because we didn't hang enough people to justify having a hang and execution at all time. Anyway, uh, so my dad started trying to look into the story of who this guy was. Could he be a namesake? Um, or he was a namesake, could he be a relation? Because he came from Wicklow and he knew that our family, we were from Dublin, but originally came from Wicklow as well. So, um, and around 1998 as well, we'd been in this car crash where his back had gotten screwed up. So he wasn't able to work as much as he was working with his own business. So he had a lot more time in his hands. So he started getting into this research. And I don't know if anyone's ever done family research in Ireland, but it's kind of difficult because we burned all of the records um, in the 20s in the Civil War. So we don't have very many census records before the 1900s. Um, so, and it used to consist of, back in 98, literally you'd go to churches and go through these old books looking at transcriptions, which is all a little bit different now. So anyway, I remembered this story. My dad's not around anymore. He passed away in 2006. Um, and I think I have always kind of wanted to try and do something about that. I think father's like losing a father is probably one of the most difficult things that a lad will ever go through um, i don't know i don't know what it what it's like for for a woman but um i yeah i i think there's there's something in us that makes us kind of want to try and go further than our parents in some ways but i also my dad never really got to the end of the question of whether this guy was related to us or not because the records just weren't there so i wanted to try and finish what he'd started in some way to kind of honor him and also just because it was a kind of mental story, this murderer, this, this guy, he was a killer. Like at first my dad was like, it was 1998, so it was the centenary of the um, 1798 rebellion. So he thought maybe this guy is some hero, you know, and he looked into it and it turns out he was just a murderer. He'd robbed this farmer and killed him in the process. So um, 
So wait, you, you found out who the man was? So we, we knew who he was, um, but we couldn't figure out whether he was related because there was just no records about him. So that's then I decided to make this documentary, a radio documentary, where I go back and uh, try and finish what my dad started and see whether I was related to this murderer or not, which kind of carries kind of a bit of cachet, I think, if you were able to say, yeah, my great-great-great-grandfather was the last man hanged in Michael Jail for murder. I think someone would take you a bit more seriously, despite the baby face for that. <laughs> I'm kind of disconcerting that you maintained eye contact for that entire sentence. <laughs> Um, but we do have a couple of clips from the show. Uh, just in terms of context, I thought it might be a bad idea to play some clips, um, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. So, well, there's t- so we have three clips, but the, I suppose the first one is, so what I started to do, what my, my really fond memories of, of that following two summers were like being in the passenger seat with my dad, driving around the Wicklow Mountains, literally just going in and knocking on doors to, you know, old people and saying, do you know anything about this? Um, and sitting while, you know, drinking copious amounts of tea. And I was just like, I felt kind of, I was really into the bill when I was that age, and I felt kind of like I was a detective. Um, and I was just being fed bits of it. My dad was just kind of, you know, like, respecting my opinion. He was doing all the legwork, but I was coming up with these theories. So I, I kind of got in the car on my own last summer and decided to set off around the Wicklow Mountains and knock on doors and see if any of these people were still around. So um, the first clip is, is this man I met called Pat Coogan, who's a bachelor farmer, who I, I tried to find the area where James Haskins was brought up. Um, so he was brought up in a place called Mangan's Lane outside Tinnahili. And I just pulled into the first house I saw and knocked on the door. And Pat Coogan is the man I met. And I just think he's, his way of speaking is, is incredible. It was, he had, actually, he's in the documentary. He didn't really move the story along very much, but I just thought he was such a brilliant person that he had to be in it. So, Ray, do you mind if you put that clip on? How you doing? Hello, My name's Dylan, and I'm making a documentary for RTE about a guy who was from Mangan's Lane here, but I don't know which house it would be, so I wanted to call into one of them to see if I might be able to get a steer. It's a long time ago, though. What? What? It was a Haskins was the name of the family. Oh, you're coming. You're going back. I'm going back 150 years. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I know, I'm not expecting anyone to remember, you no, know. I, no, but he, I never heard the name up here. Did you not? No. They would have been farmers. It was a William Haskins, and then his son was a James, but there was a few of them. And they were, because I saw there's a bunch of houses along here which all looked like, you know, they could have been built around then. Oh, yeah. Older ones. This looks like, you know. Oh, yeah, well, this, uh, this, uh, this was Milhalls. I'm Coogan. Pat Coogan. Pat Coogan. And have you, so have you, you've lived here long, have you? No, I'm here for 60 years. Right, okay. And do you know, are there anybody around who, who would be a good person to talk to who might God, who the, might know some of I the... Tell you what it is, they're all dead. Are they? No. There's no one. Haskins. I never heard hell of them up here. Mm. I never heard hell of Haskins. Mm. I mean, I know there was Haskins down in Tinnahili. There's That's right. the name above the sh- one of the shops was there That's for right. years. Hi, well. Hi, and John was there. Right, okay. I wonder what they probably did have been some, but they are dead. Are they? Oh, yeah. They have no relations? No. They have no relations. There were two bachelors was there. But Haskins is over in Stranny Kelly. They wouldn't be that length away. They'd be over near yeah, near the Dying Cow, Shalala, that area. The Dying Cow. Right. And they're still there? Well, they're still there. Really? God, I'd go to them now. They're the only Haskins. They're the only Haskins now that I know. You you wouldn't know if they're Catholic or if they're Church of Oh, they're Catholics. Oh, they're Catholics, yeah. There's nothing else up here, only Catholics. This is something which has jarred all along. It seems James Haskins and his adoptive family were Roman Catholic. But I know for a fact that my family and most of the other Haskins in Wicklow were Protestant. You don't know the names of the Haskins who were up in Stranachelly? Oh, there's Tom. Tom, is it? Tom Haskins, yeah. You know, you never heard tell of the, the, the dying cow, you didn't? No. There's a pub, yeah. a little pub. Yeah. 
And there's a woman there, and she could tell you maybe more. She could tell you more about the Haskinses now. Okay. That's the thing, you know, it's... Uh, oh, there, yeah. Ten years ago, there probably might have been. Oh, there? yeah, there could have been. Yeah. Yeah, there could have been. You're a, you're a few... Uh, yeah, you're a few years late coming, all right. <laughs> there's a few... If you're gone, I'd be able to tell you. It's funny the difference that makes, isn't it? Oh, yeah, oh, if your year makes an awful difference. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it does, yeah. <laughs> Pat, Pat didn't know that I was recording the whole thing, even though I had this microphone, which was this massive, like, furry thing. And at the end of it, he said, Don't be putting me on the radio. He said, I was wondering what that thing was. And, uh, but we did this launch listening thing in Wicklow Jail and uh, Pat came down to it as well and he was, he, was kinda, he was getting elbowed by all the other guys who'd come down with him from, from Dunhill as well. But there's just characters like that and you just don't hear people talk like that anymore as well. There was another guy, Willie Stedman, who's 89, still drives a combine harvester and he's very proud that he was the first person to bring a combine harvester to the county, I think. <laughs> and Willie just, he, he's like... Like in, any, in another era, I'm sure he would have been a historian or something, but he ended up being a farmer. And he's the man who has all the stories in the area. And like, I, I didn't know if the story would still survive. I had this kind of faint memory of knocking into some old woman's house and she told us some kind of story that um, Haskins had come at this guy, Pew, who was a moneylender. And, uh, uh, and, and there'd been a fight and Pew, the farmer, had went to hit him with an axe something like that and he'd hit the beam in the roof and missed and then Haskins killed him and to this day you could still see the mark where the axe or whatever had hit the beam in the roof um, but like that was you know on 28 that was when I was 11 I was like Did that really happened do I remember that so I was trying to find someone who'd have the story and then I found Willie Stedman who tells stories in such a natural way that I just don't think our generation do like when I meet up with my friends it's always like you know recent stuff it's like you know well this happened with this person and this is what i'm doing at the moment and none of this like willie when i asked him how he came to have these stories he said when i was a lad i talked to the old men and i heard their stories and he's from a generation born before we had radio before we had tv storytelling is just a different thing to them you know and i and i think we've a lot of us have lost the art like i mean there's been amazing storytellers here tonight but um so much of our, I think our generation have lost that way of talking just because it's not part of the same, we don't socialize in the same way. And, and one of the stories Willie told me, he said, uh, he was saying this, this story about the murder, he knew about the Haskins murder and he'd actually lived in the house where it had happened for a few years. And he said, Mike Troy told me that story. He said, and Mike Troy, he said, he was a very intelligent man. He was a bit of a recluse. He wasn't well dressed. Um, but he said, but if, if he couldn't do something, he'd tell you how it was done. And he said, and I remember in 1942, Germany had just started firing V2 rockets at England. And, uh, and there was a bunch of the young fellas and a bunch of the old men standing out in the road. And Mike Troy was looking up at the stars and they were all talking about these V2 rockets. And Mike Troy said, Do you know what? It won't be long before the day they put a man on the moon. He said, and the only thing, he said he wasn't wrong. The only thing that was wrong that he didn't live to see it. But I was there in 1942 when Mike Troy said they put a man on the moon. And like he's bang on, and the thing is, the, the scientists who put the man on the moon were the same ones who invented the V2 rockets. And here is some guy who's grown up in Wicklow Mountains, never probably left Tinnahili, and he has this wisdom as well. But there's another clip we have, which is a shorter one of, of Willie Stedman, a little bit of the story that he told me of the murder from, from that part. Can we hear that? So, Mrs. Pugh and the son, he yoked up a, a pony and car and off to set for Coravanish about one o'clock in the morning. Naturally alarmed by this afflicting intelligence, Mrs. Pugh left her bed and set out on foot in company with young Pugh for the residence of her daughter, whom she was equally surprised and delighted to find in excellent health. The mother says, turn around and go back. She says, there's something that's happened. And they come back as quick as they could and the man was murdered. There was a, another house quite near the Pugh's house and uh, people in the name of it, Dan Lachlan and his wife, they were terrible old people, you see. And she heard some noise in the night and she says to the husband, she says, there's someone murdering old Pew outside. He says, go, he said, and they'll murder you too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he never looked out. And it was the case. 
Yeah, and they live next door, but he's a terrible old man. I heard him shouting. But he didn't go anywhere, but he lived next door. The mother. So the, the old couple, he's like, there's an old couple by the name of O'Loughlin living next door. In 1843, like, that's 170 years ago, and he knows the old people, and he pointed me to the house where they live. Like, that's mental. So, I don't know, th- th- those type of moments were like, the, the best part of making it, meeting people like that. Well, I see, <clears throat> my favourite part of the experience is the two of us staring off into the middle distance as the audio clip gets played. I'm enjoying that. <laughs> I had 40, we had 40 minutes of that in Wicklow Jail yeah. as we did the listening event <laughs> for it. Brilliant. It's actually really good. Yeah. That's what people used to do. They used to come yeah. and gather around the wireless as it was and just listen to the radio for big moments. Not that this is big uh, On that... I know that you've, uh, like, I, I saw a documentary that you made years ago uh, when, when you were, uh, like, younger and you were into, like, DIY punk and whatnot, called Roll Up Your Sleeves. Did you find doing a documentary for RT1 uh, now, at your age, but going around the country, looking for historical facts or certainly anecdotal versions of historical facts difficult? Because... I mean, I'm presuming the guy that had a very clear speaking voice wasn't you in that last clip. But I would imagine that that man would be more, what people would imagine, would be an RT1 broadcaster researching a historical event. Do you know what I mean? Well, that's why it's on radio, so no one knows how young I look on radio. Whereas I always found that really hard with, like, I used to present in Young People's, and it was like, you know, you, you, you're fine in Young People's because you look young. And, but I wasn't interested in that. I was interested in real stories and like talking to people. I prefer to talk to an 89-year-old. People some, take it seriously. Uh, they do on radio, but they, they but it, I, in TV, I found that I was always just like... You had no problem interviewing people? No, no. The stories I, I think they kind of thought I was... They didn't, they didn't know what to make of me when I'd knock up to a door like that. I think they probably... A lot of people thought, yeah, whatever. Same when I was making the, the, the previous film. In fact, the last line in the previous film is this guy from this punk band who very well could have played in this place, man called Minor Threat, this guy Ian, they, Ian Mackay. They did. There's a picture of them on the Is wall. there really? Yeah, sorry. sorry. Unreal. <clears throat> so yeah. Ian Mackay is this legend, legendary punk figure and I'd email them as like a 20-year-old being like, do an interview for this film I want to make about DIY punk. And, and the last line in the film is like, so he's like, you know, do things He's like, because they're enjoyable, not because you think that you're going to, you know, get somewhere as a result of them. He's like, say this documentary. He's like, this film might never get made. And he said it in a way that he really didn't think it was going to get made. He thought it was a fan coming to set up a camera. He's like, but so what? He's like, you've had a pretty good time making it. I've had a decent time talking to you. He's like, so what? And that's the last line in the film. And it it was, um, yeah, I forget why I was saying that. There was a a question there, wasn't there? To be fair, I think it's relevant in terms of the fact that you are the kind of person that would put yourself in what I would imagine has been a series of awkward situations. You ran for election, you put yourself... Well, the election was the same thing. So the video that we announced, used to announce the election campaign was all animated. It was someone drawing and it was making, putting the ideas out there. That's how the whole campaign was introduced because no one, it was like no one knew who I was and you're, you look like a child and you're asking people to vote for you. Um, so we decided to make a video that put the ideas out there first and so people would listen to the ideas and then decide whether they like the ideas or not. And then they only see you at the end and you go, I'm blah, this is my ideas, vote for me. Whereas had you been there at the front of the video, people would go, be thinking about other things. Just, you can't help it. I would be doing the same. You'd be going, hang on a second, his hair looks weird. Looks, how old is he? Like, is he old enough to run for this thing? Like, you know, you, your mind would be elsewhere and not listening to what someone's saying. So uh, it was the same strategy with the election. It was like, don't put them in front of the camera. Just put the ideas out there first, and then no one cares once they decide if they agree with you or not. But. Did you find that this this type of work, where you're you're um, you're spending long periods of time with people that you don't know in communities that you don't necessarily have a connection to, yeah. trying to find a story that's somewhat universal? Did you find that 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 was a completely different experience, or is it still part of the same idea? Um, my favorite thing is that my favorite thing is just like is just talking to cool old people like it's it's actually like um unfortunately there's no like i think our you know so much focus now is on the new and the young and like you know bright young things i hate that thing like this 
because I know I know young people who are incredible, and I know old people who are way more radical than most young people I know as well. So like, the age thing is not something that's ever bothered me. All the gigs I used to put on were all ages. It wasn't it wasn't underage gigs. So like, we were 15 putting on gigs for people of all ages. I've always had friends older than me. I've always had friends younger than me. I don't think it should matter. I think it's like, you know, the quality of what you have to say. So that, doing that type of thing around the Wicklow Mountains, like, unfortunately, you're getting paid uh, documentary rates, which basically, if you divide it by the hours you've spent, will be less than minimum wage making it. But you don't do it for that. You do it because it's a story that you want to tell. And same reason, you know, you guys are doing this. Like, you know, it's not going to be, you're not going to be cashing the check walking out here tonight. But it's, 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 cool to platform things it's cool to like we did this listening event and we had all we had willie stedman that guy there we had pat coogan we had all these other people interviewed in it we've never been on radio before come down and it was really funny a bunch of them like all the lads sat together and they were all elbowing each other when someone came on as well and it was it was like it was just cool to see like people like willie stedman should be on the radio more often they're way better storytellers than most of us you know but they're not because of this focus on young so yeah so what happened next in the documentary? Yeah. Um, so I got the story of, uh, I don't want to give it all away as well, because you can listen to it online, the, the documentary. Oh, yeah. You can totally download this podcast. Yeah, I totally. <laughs> I've actually listened to it, but I, I thought it would be great if you ruined the story for yeah. the entire audience. But it's, yeah. called, it's called The Murderer, Me, and My Family Tree. Um, and I, I, met a, I met so many, I tried to track down all of the Haskins in Ireland, which in Wicklow, was four families, like the grand total left of us. Um, and the way that I actually did, I did get further than my dad had gotten, and how that was, was, was by using science. So at the start of it, I'd been motivated by this kind of like sense that if I don't do the covered, if I don't like find out this story now, um, it'll be gone. No one else is going to know. The generation that know the story, Willie, Willie Stebbins' generation, are going to be gone in a few years. Um, and this knowledge will be lost with them. Uh, so I wanted to go because I was afraid of the loss of knowledge. I thought it was probably gone already. And weirdly enough, what actually completed the story for me was the advance of time. So there's this so there's scientific technology available to us now and digitization of records available to us now, which wasn't available even 10 years ago, let alone 15 years ago. Um, and that gave me more information. So there's this weird idea about that you lose information to time, but you also gain information to time. So we were able to do this DNA test. I met this guy... Chris Haskins, who uh, was originally from Wicklow, married a woman here, and took over her father's business, and it became one of the biggest like food businesses in Britain. And then he was made a peer by Blair in the nineties. Guy called Lord Christopher Haskins. I'd heard about him. I was like, oh, there's a Haskins because it's, it's a rare enough thing. And I went to visit his sister, who lives in Wicklow, because she was one of the ones that I tracked down. They have their family tree traced all the way back to the seventeen hundreds. So. I realized that if I could see whether or not I was related to them, I would be able to prove whether or not I'm descended from James Haskins, the murderer, because I also discovered that he was adopted. So he's not going to have the same DNA as these people. Who's, it's kind of complicated. It doesn't sound that complicated in the documentary. Um, so I did a DNA test with this guy, Chris Haskins, um, and there's, there's a little clip of, of, of it from, from the end of that. Um, but it was but totally by chance. I went to visit his sister, and he was over visiting. And I just met him by chance, and he said, yeah, cool, I'll do a DNA test. So we did a DNA test, and this is after the results, but I won't. Anyway. The reason I began this kind of quest and the reason I ended up phoning Anne, your sister, and bumping yeah. into you was to find out about this James Haskins, the last man hanged in Wicklow Jail. Yeah. And it's kind of remarkable that the route that I've taken from trying to figure out am I related to a... Haskins who was a murderer and discovering along the way that I'm related to a Haskins sitting in the house of lords. Well, sometimes there are people who sat in the house of lords have murdered people too. <laughs> Although my dad couldn't prove it, his hunch about our branch of the family connecting with Chris and Anne's was right. Once I'd solved it, the first person I wanted to tell was my dad. I played out in my head the conversation we might have had and all the additional detail that I could have told him about James Haskins and how his story ends. March 18th. This day, James Haskins was executed in front of our jail for the murder of John Pugh. He had, it is asserted, declared the evening before that he did not wish to live. And apparently, 
he was resigned to his fate and prepared to encounter the melancholy scene he had to pass through. There were hung- Oh, that, was, that was my really good editing earlier on when I was making the clips. Um, there was, so James Haskins was, was executed for the murder, and on the night before he was executed, the three priests were called, and he confessed to the murder and said it was him and him alone, which the night before you're executed, insisting that it was you and you alone, would maybe imply that it wasn't. Um, and I, there'd been this strand of the story which I'd cut out because it was just too complicated. There was three strands going on already. There's the story of the murder, there's me trying to finish off my dad started, and there's am I related. So I said, there was this question over whether there was other people involved in the murder or not. And I just, I'd kind of dropped it out. But there was originally two other men arrested at the same time. And when we did the listening event, um, this woman put up her hand and she said, I'm from the town. She said, the reason I came is because I was very interested in the story because my father always told me they hanged the wrong man for it. And, and I was like, well, that's weird because it was this confession. And then this other woman said, well, yeah, there's a few things that don't make sense in the, in the story as well. Like, you know, why... So Haskins had just gotten out of jail and he'd come back from jail, from a year in jail for sheep stealing. And, and he'd come back to the area. So how would he have known that all these details around the murder, it was really clever how they planned it. Like they knocked on the door and they said, your daughter who lives a mile away has taken ill in childbirth and one's gone for the doctor and another for the priest. So they left the house and that's when they went in to rob it. Um, how would he have known that the daughter was pregnant if he'd been in jail for a year? Like, you know, there'd have to be someone passing information, telling him about this. Apparently he passed some men on the road at night and said goodnight to them. And this woman was like, why would he say goodnight if he was about to rob someone? He'd surely be hiding in the bushes. There's all these weird things, but like I finished the documentary, so what are you going to do? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I know I give you a hard time, but I, I, I genuinely have to say it because it's always really embarrassing to you. Um, that I, I admire everything that you do and how you go about it. Like, I know it's not difficult to make, it's not easy to make uh, the, the kind of work that you make. We really appreciate you coming here tonight. And we encourage anybody in the audience to download the podcast which is The Murderer, Me, and My Family Tree. And it's uh, available for free. It's an RTE One documentary. And uh, you wouldn't mind putting your hands together to thank Dylan Haskins for joining us this evening. And that's pretty much the episode. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to our guests uh, today, uh, Christian Foley. Dylan Haskins. Alison Spittle. And uh, today's episode was produced by Eilish Bracken and was sound engineered and mixed by Emma Butt. Um, Again, we tried to make it as difficult as possible for Emma, but she managed to pull yes. it out of the bag. Anything that sounds bad in, in any of these recordings is due to our terrible recording of it in the first place. <laughs> and anything good is down to Emma. So thank you very much, Emma, for that. Um, so yeah so uh, if you are enjoying the podcast tell mates about it get them to subscribe make sure you're subscribed rate and comment on it tell us what you think go to the website uh, theweeklygm.com go to twitter uh, at theweeklygm go to facebook slash theweeklygm or go to instagram at theweeklygm all that jazz and um, yeah let us know that you're listening we'd really appreciate hearing it it would make all this feel we know that you're downloading. We know that you've definitely downloaded episodes. We just we need to know that you're listening. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like when you're having a conversation for, with someone and you go and and you, you kind of give them a little detail back, and then that makes them know that you're listening. That's right, Shane. Yeah. What was I just saying? Oh, some crap about the internet. <sighs> that hurts. Anyway, uh, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next Wednesday with a brand new episode. This has been the Weekly General Meeting. I've been Shane Langan. I've been Neil Conlon. Will we, will we go back and fix that or will we just go? Let's <laughs> <laughs> just go. Okay. We'll leave you this week with a poem from the archives recorded in Dublin in June 2014. This is the wonderful Alvy Carraher. Sometimes it's hard to tell when a poet finishes a poem, so I'll stare at the floor so that you know it's over, so there's no awkward silence. On your last night, I stayed away as long as I could. I didn't want another sludge of hours spent counting hospital tiles or the tip and tap of time passing, as if there was a choice in the matter.
The sound of footsteps trying not to wake the dying, knowing you too should rest in peace. Away from Grandad, who insisted you looked much better now, and you still slumped and slack-jawed, being drip-fed someone else's dreams. And I imagine at first the two of you stooped over your bent dreams, how they were black and mangled, dead as your numb foot. It was only the foot at first, and later the rest went too, and Grandad said every prayer, lit every candle. He took no notice when you started to rewind. You called me Sandra. We did not mention how you'd forgotten. There are things I know I will not miss. Your wheelchair in the corner looming. Its two wheels spawn 20 years of misery. A memory stuck somewhere between fighting and giving up. Lost in a haze of Coronation Street ham sandwiches and tea. Until the pictures they showed us at the funeral were someone we never met, standing stick skinny with a jumper to your waist, hair tossed back in laughter, and we think of your candle snuffed down to a black wick. I hardly remembered the sound of you laughing, just granddad's cluck of care around you, missing a beat the day your hand fell heavy in mashed potatoes, and you sat more red and bloated and determined than we can bring ourselves to watch, hissing his name so we wouldn't notice. On your last night in the hospital bed, it was five hours before someone told us it was over and you waited till the girls came back from their cough of fresh air at 4am on a summer's night in a hospital car park. On your last night in the hospital bed where you'd call them all angels days before. A brief moment of recognition in the catch of a song note on Nancy's throat as she sung you back to sleep. I could not bring myself to step any closer, did not trust you'd know my words from any others. On your last night in the hospital bed, the morphine saying you felt nothing but your low wail punctuating Lucy's rosary beads, the beads clicking quick between her fingers. And when it was over, when there was no more fight left in those lungs and the leg that gave up long before wasn't the only part of you without feeling, when you had forgotten not just me but everyone, Grandad stood over you saying it didn't seem right, it didn't seem right, and Daddy clutching your hand like he could pull you back from that gone place. You might know we lost Grandad too that night. His hands left empty as he wanders the halls of your old house, screaming your name so loud the neighbours can hear his last love song. The day we made our way to the funeral, we found him doing your laundry. He gave us jumpers you hadn't worn since the 80s, said he wouldn't be coming, but to remember you well. To remember the girl on the island, her heart running faster than her footsteps could carry her. She who left home at 13 knowing how to make strong tea and fish for crabs and no chance of learning much more sent to work away from the slap of sea air. She who walked through the streets of Birmingham in a two-piece navy suit and there wasn't a man didn't stop as she walked by. The young woman she became flitting through hands of young men at the dance halls, finding my granddad in his red plaid suit and teaching him to smile one strong cup of tea at a time. She who loved her only child like he was the only child and how you whispered your first grandchild's name, Alvi, like a promise. I still think of you, though I do not visit your grave and were I to find my way there, what would I say? Just stand, helpless, whispering my name to you over and over. Um, <laughs> and, um,